I know my rights. You ever heard anyone say that? I know my rights. Well, we do need to know our rights. And in the country in which we live, we certainly are concerned, and rightfully so, about, about our rights. There was concern when the Constitution of our nation was first uh, drawn, initiated. The anti-federalist uh, movement or concern there about perhaps the government having too much power led to the writing of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. And uh, the Bill of Rights was designed to help to ensure that there was not too much centralization of power in the government and that individuals had certain rights, one of which is freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, the right to assemble, and so on. And, of course, today in the time in which we live, there's concern that there may be some uh, erosion or some cutting out or the possibility that not everyone is as concerned as they need to be, as he or she needs to be about our rights. But it's not the Bill of Rights about which I intend to speak today, though certainly it is appropriate for us to be concerned about doing all that we can to make sure that we influence our nation to enable us as Christians, if we're Christians this morning, to be able to assemble peaceably and to worship as God would have us worship, to have that freedom. It's a precious freedom indeed. But I wish to talk about exercising your greatest right. What is the greatest right that is spoken of in Scripture? I believe it's found in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. In John 1, 11 through 13, John writes, He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is a very powerful passage of scripture as it addresses the most prevalent religious error in so-called Christendom today. That error being salvation by faith or belief alone. This passage that you see here completely denies that one is saved by faith alone. I'd like for us to see how that is done. He came to his own, first of all, and his own did not receive him. Verse 11 reminds us. Look at the first two words of that verse. He came. Let those words sink into your ears. He came. He came. How thankful are you this morning that he came? He didn't have to come. 
He had to come if you and I were to have any hope of eternal salvation, but he did not have to come. God did not have to send him. Christ did not have to come, and yet he did. And when you read a passage like we've studied recently in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you are reminded of the kind of sacrifice that Jesus willingly made for you and for me because he was willing to come. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's where he was. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We've emphasized that last phrase before, even the death of the cross. He was willing to suffer immensely. He willingly suffered immensely, physically, but also suffering the separation from the Father for a time as he bore the sins of all mankind for all time on his shoulders, which prompted the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He came. He came. Oh, what emotion that should evoke within us, and oh, what a response of obedience it should evoke within us. But the verse continues, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Despite the sacrifice that he was willing to make for mankind, for the most part, most part, mankind rejected him initially, and for the most part, mankind rejects him continually. But the idea here is that he came to his own land and his own people rejected him. The first own is in the neuter gender, which indicates things, his own things, or his own land, his own country. And then the second own is in a gender that indicates people. He came to his own land, his own country, Palestine, but his own people, the Jews, initially rejected him. And for the most part, that was the case. And on more than one occasion, Jesus lamented as he looked upon the city of Jerusalem the fact that, for the most part, the inhabitants of that city and of that land that surrounded that holy city, as it was known, refused to accept him as the Savior who was willing to sacrifice so much for them. Ultimately, the gospel would go to all men, Jew and Gentile, and yet, as we said, even today, even today, Jew and Gentile, for the most part, reject him. But not all rejected him. Notice what verse 12 reminds us about. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. This is so crucial to the point that we made a moment ago about how this passage 
defeats the false but prevalent doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Notice what is said here. But as many as received him, that is, were willing to take them to themselves, take him to themselves is the idea, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who received him, whatever is involved in receiving, and we're about to see that, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. But who are those in this verse who are said to have received him? They are those who, what? Believed in his name. They are those who believed that he was and is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. When they were willing to accept that and to receive him as the Messiah, at that point in time, believing in his name, they were given what? Salvation? No. They were given their greatest right. That which is still the greatest right available to mankind today. And that is the right to what? The right to become. The right to become. Not children of God, but the right to become children of God. And so... Those who received him, notice the verse, were those who what? Believed in his name. Isn't that what the verse says? But as many as received him, to them, to those who received him, he gave them, those who received him, the right to become children of God. But who were those? Who were those who received him? To those who believe in his name. That's what inspiration tells us very clearly, doesn't it? How can there be any misunderstanding about what the verse is saying? The verse is not saying that all those who received him as the Messiah, believed him to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that upon their expression of that belief, were they saved, but they had the right to become saved. They had the right to become what? Saved believers. There's a difference between a believer and a saved believer in Scripture. And this verse points out that very clear difference. When Jesus came, for the most part, he was rejected. But not by all. There were those who saw the miracles that he performed. They heard the words that he taught and they exclaimed, no man ever spoke like this man because he spoke with authority and not as one of of the scribes. And we have that same teaching today preserved for us forevermore. We can exclaim as those who actually heard his own words what they exclaimed when they heard him if our hearts are right, and that is, no man ever spoke like this man. I've never read anything like these words. I've never read or heard a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount, the Constitution of Christianity, as it has been called. Therefore, I know this man was like no other who has ever lived or ever shall live 
upon the earth. And I do not have to, as we have often pointed out, see the miracles that he performed, though many who saw those miracles because their hearts were receptive said, this man could not do the things he has done unless he's from God. That's what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus by night, didn't he? Nobody could do this unless he's from God. But I don't have to see those miracles, and I cannot see those miracles because those miracles are no longer needed and no longer available. But as with his words, I can also read of his deeds. And John reminds me in the latter part of this same account from which our text comes today, that many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And so therefore... I can understand and appreciate everything that hearts that were attuned to his teaching and his deeds could appreciate when he walked this earth because God has now through the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of men whom the Holy Spirit inspired given me all that I need to produce faith, a faith that will what? give me the right to act upon that faith to become children of God. You see, my initial belief in Christ, accepting him to be the Christ after I read of his miracles, after I read of his teachings, when I come away from that reading and say, I'm reading about the Messiah. I'm reading about the Christ. I believe what I've read. What do I do then? I must act upon the right that I have at that point, just as John 1.12 reminds me. As we have said, not all believers are saved believers. Look with me at a text we've looked at before, John 12, 42 and 43. Think about this as an illustration of the very point that is made in John 1, 11 through 13. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, these are rulers of the synagogue now, these are Jews. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Who are these people? These people of whom we read in John 12, 42 and 43, these people are those who believed in his name and who had the right, had the right as a result of their belief to become children of God. They would have had to have confessed him, that is, with everything involved in that confession, not just saying they believed, they would have had to have openly professed their belief by becoming his followers. In other words, they would have had to have acted upon it. John's baptism, 
was in effect Jesus was baptizing, not him personally, but his disciples were baptizing those penitent Jews, and they would have had to have submitted to that baptism that was pertinent at that time. They would have had to have openly obeyed the Christ. They believed that he was the Christ. The the verses say that they believed. And so, according to John 1 and verse 12, they had the right to become children of God in their time. But they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And they knew that the moment they became followers of Christ, they were out of the synagogue. They were ostracized by their peers. They were out. They were cut off from that which they were not willing to be cut off from, and they failed to exercise the greatest right they had ever been given. Very clear, isn't it? When you put the precept, John 1, 12, with the example, John 12, 42 and 43, of exactly what the case is with the vast majority of those living today, yes, even those who proclaim that they are followers of Christ. If they believe that he is the Christ, then they have the right, just as these had the right, to become children of God. But by believing that they've exercised that right by simply praying a prayer rather than obeying goes contrary to what John 1, 11 through 13 teaches. And then in verse 13, the final verse of our study, in John 1, 13, this verse says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, or of man, but of God. Notice it again, who were born not of blood, blood there is literally plural, so it's not of bloods, these people under consideration in John 1, 11 through 13, they were not given this right by the mingling of bloods, the blood of a male and a female, a fleshly relationship, nor by the will of man, nor by anything that man has authorized. But they were given the right to become children of God by God himself. Now this word born is interesting here. In scripture, when you see the word born and you sometimes see the word begotten, both of these words are translated from the same word in the original. And so the context has to determine whether born is the sense of it, completely born, the birth has been accomplished, or whether Begettle is under consideration. In other words, just the father's part of the process, whether or not that's under consideration. And I believe that here in John 1.13, it is begettle that is the sense of this passage here, according to the context. You see, a child is begotten by his father, isn't it? And he's born of his mother. 
a child of God is begotten by the Father, God. How? By the seed, the Word of God that is planted in the heart. But he's born of what? He's born of water. He's born of water. He's born of baptism. And so sometimes when the Scriptures refers to being born of God, if the whole process is under consideration, then that would include baptism. But if only the begettal, God's part, is under consideration specifically, then the planting of the seed is by God through the Word. But when the seed is planted, again, in the hearts of those who received Him, the seed was planted and they believed, but had the seed brought forth fruit? No, not until what? Not until the new birth. You see, until the process is complete, there's no new birth, and therefore no salvation. And that's what you have in John 1, 11 through 13. That passage again says what? It says... He came to his own land, is the idea. His own people did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the what? The right to become children of God. Who are they? To those who believe in his name, who were born or begotten, who were begotten not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God does the begetting through the word. But when that word is planted, that seed, and Luke eight eleven says the seed is the word of God, as the parable of the sower points out, it has to what? It has to bring forth fruit. How does it bring forth fruit? It brings forth fruit when we act upon that belief and exercise our greatest right by obeying God through his word in repenting of our sins, in confessing Him to be the Christ, and then in being buried with Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, as Nicodemus learned, when he came to the Lord by night, there is a process where the new birth involves not belief alone, but a belief that causes you to act upon that belief in being literally born of water or born again. Nicodemus, verse 4 of John 3, asked, How can a man be born when he is old? This was after Jesus said that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3, 3. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water. That's the birth that takes place when we come forth from baptism according to the teaching of the Spirit. At verse 7, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born. Not just begotten, but born. 
That's the point. You're begotten through the seed, the word of God, but you're not born when that seed is planted, just as Jesus told Nicodemus. You're born when you're born of water. That is, when you come forth from that water according to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. When is a child born? Is a child born after the child is begotten by the father? Of course not. Nine months later, there's a birth. Generally, that takes place in that period of time. At the end of that time, then the child is born of his mother. Begotten by the father, born of his mother. The child of God is begotten by God the Father through the seed that is planted, but until it germinates and until it results in obedience in a birth from water, the water of baptism, where the blood has been applied, there is no child of God that has been born. That's what John 1, 11 through 13, plainly declares. John 1, 11 through 13 clearly denies salvation by faith alone. And so, you know your right. You know your greatest right. Will you exercise it? Have you exercised it in becoming a child of God based upon a belief that Jesus is the Christ that will move you forward to repent of your sins, to confess Him to be the Christ, and then to be born of water according to the teaching of the Spirit, to be baptized for the remission of sins. That's why Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That statement is in perfect harmony with the text we studied this morning, John 1, 11 through 13. He who believes then has the right to finish the process and to become a child of God by repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it this very morning and exercise your greatest right. And if you need to come home to your first love, having once understood and exercised that greatest right, but having turned your back upon it and needing to come back to the God who begot you initially through the word and gave you the greatest right to become a child of God by obedience to the gospel, he also gives you the right, the privilege, the opportunity of coming back if you've wandered away through repentance confession of sin that's been publicly committed that we may pray with you and for you to the God who loves you and who will indeed forgive and forget and wipe the slate clean as we stand to sing will you come